I'll never forget one of the NCOs from the 173rd Airborne Brigade that was the first unit there. I said, so how's it going? We've been at this for a few weeks. And he said, sir, this is different. These guys are good. They're all experienced. They've all been under Russian artillery fire and rocket fire. And to hear the respect in the voice of this non-commissioned officer, the 173rd for the Ukrainians, really left a mark on me. Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Leading Great Teams, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. Hello, this is Colonel Retired Dan Roper. Welcome to today's episode of Army Matters. On February 24th of this year, the world's attention turned to Ukraine when it was attacked by its neighbor, Russia, after years, some would say even decades, of its aggressive behavior and intimidation. Today's guest, Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, is a candid expert on Russian, NATO, and European military strategy. His 38-year career includes tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, and more, and culminated in his final assignment as Commanding General of all U.S. Army forces in Europe from 2014 to 2017. He now serves as the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. General Hodges will talk to us about how the attack in Ukraine has exposed the Russian Army's weaknesses, the role of American military in training the Ukrainian forces, and how this affects possible Chinese future aggression. A note for our listeners, today's episode is being recorded on April 26, 2022, so may not reflect the very latest events. General Hodges, we're really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. Welcome to the show. Dan, thank you for the privilege. You commanded U.S. Army Europe from 2014 through the end of 2017, literally staring down the Russian bear for three-plus years following their 2014 aggression in eastern Ukraine and Crimea. You were one of the first and definitely one of the most candid senior military leaders to raise the alarm that Russia was not yet finished with its malign behavior and that the U.S. Army, the U.S. military, and NATO itself had better get to work because they had fallen behind. How was this candor about NATO's shortfalls received by your bosses and the partners with whom you served in NATO? Well, uh, honestly, I'm sure I was annoying uh, at times, but I, I never had anybody, you know, whether it was the army chief or SACUR, I never had anybody say, hey, shut up, just stay in your box. You know, people gave me the chance to say it. Let me let me say it like that. There were venues and opportunities. And um, I felt it was my duty to, to be candid about what the challenges were, uh, where I thought we had the greatest risk. But honestly, I also knew, and I learned this from my predecessor, Don Campbell, I also knew that we were an economy of force, that the Army had other challenges too. In addition to highlighting the, the risks, I had to come up with solutions how to, how to deal with that, this economy of force mission. As we've looked at what, what's happened with Russia since then, we saw in 2008 with their invasion of Georgia that they had a lot of work to do, but we also saw them start to take some active steps toward improvement. And over the years with what they've done in Syria and elsewhere, many in the West have started to perceive that Russia's military strength is increasing and that they were becoming an increasingly formidable adversary. 
that's not the full story here with the, the capability and performance of the Russian military. What factors do you see that might be contributing to that? I'm one of the ones who was guilty of overestimating some of the Russian capabilities. I've been watching them since 2008 when they did poorly, but we kept hearing reports and seeing examples of modernization efforts that were going on. We were reminded of the lethality of a modern battlefield with their fighting in uh, 2014 in the uh, Donbass area. But I, I've been trying to figure out how did I overestimate? How did I miss this? And one thing that I failed to realize was that all of the activities that Russian forces were carrying out from Georgia to Syria to Crimea and Donbass, it was the same 5% of the military. I mean, it was the Airborne Division, the Wagner Group, obviously, and some other combat support uh, elements, but it was really a very small part of the Army. So, in other words, they didn't have as much operational experience as I had anticipated. We knew that they were cycling officers through the Donbass or through Syria to get some combat experience, but not whole units. And I, I missed that. I also made a couple of bad assumptions as we tried to closely watch the Russian exercises. And the Russians never um, allowed observers to come out there, though they should have been, they were required to by the uh, Vienna document agreements where exercises over a certain size you're required to invite observers. I think now we know why the Russians did not want observers, because we would have probably started detecting certain things that were indicators of a lack of real joint operational capability. Shame on me for missing some of these things. I certainly assumed that there was corruption there. I did not realize how much corruption there was inside the Ministry of Defense. You know, we hear 900,000 troops. Uh, I always assumed that was Army, Navy, Air Force, Reserves, and so on. I think now probably they didn't have 500,000. That number was probably double, which is a classic methodology for corruption where you claim you've got this many troops that have to be paid when, in fact, you have half that many. The corruption was also manifested in the fact that you've got troops uh, that were in the invading force that had rations that had expired years ago or tires. Uh, that were rotten because the vehicles had not been moving. You know, the U.S. Army, we spent tons of money on uh, just maintaining equipment that we put into storage for that very reason, that seals dry out, the tires rot if you don't move the vehicles around. Clearly, they had not been doing that. But those are some things that I just did not see until now. I'd suggest don't beat yourself up too badly. Even Winston Churchill said, Russia is a riddle wrapped in an, in an enigma inside a mystery. So that, I find that really interesting. That they've got 5% of the army at the tip of the spear doing the bulk of the work, or at least the visible work. What improvements may the Russians make in the future? So do they need to try to fix the 95% of the force or the 5%? And where does Russia go in the future as much as one could suggest Almost all of the army is in the fight now. I mean, there's not second, third echelon sitting in the woods somewhere back in Russia waiting to be called forward. I mean, they're, they're all in. The first indicator that they had manpower problems when they started looking for Syrians, asking for Syrian volunteers. And they're trying to grow the, the Wagner group, which I think has been renamed Liga or something like that now. But none of Russia's so-called partners from Kazakhstan or Armenia or even Belarus 
are offering to send troops there because they, they know these guys are going to be cannon fodder. So uh, Russia has real manpower shortages, but the Russian Air Force, which has a lot of up-to-date modern equipment, does not seem to be well-trained. I mean, they can keep an airplane horizontal, but, you know, it's a big difference between that and flying into a contested airspace where you've got air defense and, and uh, so many threats, and you're supposed to be supporting ground operations or taking out targets. Now, most of the Russian uh, air operations, they're actually launching their weapons from inside Russian airspace because it is so dangerous for Russian aircraft flying through Ukraine. Now, the Navy has also been exposed. Uh, the sinking of the Moskva, when you try to figure out how could the flagship be sunk, uh, destroyed by a, uh, a Ukrainian weapon system that has just been fielded. So how did this happen? And uh, it turns out, as we've learned since, that uh, the Ukrainians not only were very tech savvy, but they also were clever in the tactical employment of drones and, and the Neptune system itself. And then I've talked to uh, professional uh, naval officers and said, what do you think happened? And they said, well, it's obvious that this thing was on fire from uh, stem to stern underneath the deck and that the sailors were unable or untrained or unwilling to do what a U.S. Navy crew would do in terms of fighting fire, uh, fighting uh, battle damage, where the, the number one priority is save the ship. And so, of course, they've probably used the last several weeks to try and fix some of the problems that they would have seen. The only one that's been visible is that they apparently appointed a theater commander, this guy, General Vornikov, but they still have eight combined arms army headquarters in the field. That's unbelievable. I can only imagine that they have not quite sorted out all the, uh, the chain of command. It also is my sense that Vornikov is not actually the joint force commander the way we would think about it, where he has uh, responsibility and authority over all the air, land, sea, special forces, and other enablers, which is why we still don't see the Russian Navy supporting ground operations. We still don't see the Russian Air Force supporting uh, integrated into ground operations. I just think they, they have so many challenges that they're not going to miraculously become joint warriors I mean, it took the U.S. Congress to make us become joint, and we work at it all the time, and it's still hard as hell. I think that really paints a clear picture of what we're seeing, at least at this stage, of what is probably going to be a very long game. And I agree, all the joint planning sometimes comes with problems, but at the end of the day, it's well worth it. We're going to take a quick break and then return with more from General Hodges, including thoughts on how the Russian attack on Ukraine is likely to affect the American military presence in Europe in the future. Have you purchased your AUSA swag yet? Be proud to show your support for AUSA, which in turn shows your support for the U.S. Army and our soldiers. Check out all AUSA swag at shop.ausa.org. Welcome back. We're here with General Ben Hodges. The most discussion in the news has been on America's current and future contribution of weapons, ammunition, and intelligence to the Ukrainians. But there's something else I think is being overlooked, and that's the training that the U.S. has provided the Ukrainians for years. Most recently is this February when over 100 Florida Army National Guardsmen were in Ukraine training Ukrainian forces. This building, of course, and the multi-year training provided by the California Army National Guard through the State Partnership Program. From your experience, what role has this training played in the Ukrainian resistance thus far? 
the decision by U.S. European Command to establish the uh, Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine there in Yavoriv, I think was a very important development for a variety of reasons. One, and this is where uh, I had asked uh, at the time Brigadier General Chris Cavoli uh, to come forward with his guys from Hohenfels and Grafenbeer to help Ukraine establish a training center. So it was not just a training area. I mean, this had been an old Soviet training area for a long time. But I asked Chris, I said, look, we, they need a training center with cadre and op four and where um, units get better before they head to the combat zone. I think this was an important decision by U.S. European Command. Good work by 7th uh, Army Training Center, Chris Cavoli. And then the units that we had, we started off using uh, our paratroopers. Then we, I think we brought in a striker battalion one time, and then the Army sent us another battalion. And then it became full-time National Guard rotations. I'll never forget one of the NCOs from the 173rd Airborne Brigade that was the first unit there. I said, so how's it going? We've been at this for a few weeks. And he said, sir, this is different. These guys are good. They're all experienced. They've all been under Russian artillery fire and rocket fire. And to hear the respect in the voice of this non-commissioned officer, the 173rd for the Ukrainians, really left a mark on me. And then we noticed uh, when the decision was made to provide the Q-36 radar to Ukrainian armed forces, how quickly they learned to use the radar and to employ it. I mean, they immediately started making decoys uh, because they knew the Russians would come after it uh, right away. To be honest, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that radar is better than I realized. And of course, I've never been under Russian artillery fire. That's a powerful motivator. Believe you me, they will learn very quickly how to use any new equipment. The Ukrainians are very tech savvy. Some have argued, or starting to argue, that Europe's response to the war in Ukraine, like Germany's plan for a major increase in defense spending, this now presents an opportunity for the U.S. to shift the burden of European defense to its European NATO allies, while the U.S. focuses more on the priority theater of the Indo-Pacific. Others argue that the return to large-scale conventional war in Europe means the United States needs to recommit even more to European security. So how do you assess and reconcile the tension between these two positions? Well, look, I don't disagree with uh, Secretary Austin's uh, statement several months ago that China is going to be the pacing threat. Clearly, they are a long-term adversary. I think we're seeing the beginning uh, at some point that the uh, pieces of the Russian Federation are going to start coming off. But they still have mass. They have a willingness to use brute force as if this was the 11th or 12th century, and they have thousands of nuclear weapons. And they clearly are a threat to every one of their neighbors. The United States does not have the luxury to pick what our threats are. We, Of course, we have to prioritize you can't put everything you have against every threat. And we have others, you know, Iran, North Korea. You know, nobody even talks about terrorism anymore, but those guys are still out there. And I think that uh, we are going to need a strong a joint team on the continent in Europe for the foreseeable future. You and I knew what the Army had back in the Cold War days. I mean, when we had almost 300,000 troops. Uh, but it's clear that 30,000 is not enough to deter. I mean, look at how much stuff we brought forward. That'll tell you, give you some sense of the deficit of, of what's needed. 
Don Campbell, my predecessor, right after Russia invaded Crimea, he sent basically one battalion of paratroopers to total to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. So 100 paratroopers walking off the back of a C-17 into each of those four countries. And people were in tears. You had presidents, ministers of defense. Everybody was out there. That's what the U.S. Army represents. And the fact that those guys were located in Europe meant that they could get there so quickly and that we could sustain that. That's powerful. One other interesting development that seems to be entering the conversation more and more, the achievement of the exact opposite of Putin's objectives, which he's trying to minimize NATO, in addition to the enhanced contributions from our European NATO allies, Finland and Sweden appear to both be on the path to joining NATO. What capabilities would they bring to the alliance and what impact would their accession have on NATO's ability to deter or defeat Russian aggression if necessary? Both Sweden and Finland will bring very good, very effective, well-trained and well-equipped forces in, in all domains, air, land, sea. Uh, you know, we've been working with them for years uh, in many cases. I'm in Helsinki this week, in fact, uh, in my role as a NATO senior mentor in a long-scheduled uh, mobile training team course on how to do NATO uh, operational planning. So I'm here at uh, one of their uh, military installations with a group of about 25 Finnish officers, plus a couple of others from the Netherlands and, and Germany. I'm telling you, these guys are very, very smart. But my sense is that everybody wants this to happen. They know that their security will be better. But you can be sure that Sweden and Finland will be security providers, not consumers. Uh, there's a famous story about uh, uh, it was a U.S. congressional delegation visited Finland uh, a few years ago, and one of the congressmen asked the Finnish minister of defense, he said, how many Russians are here in, uh, in Finland? I mean, he, he didn't know. <laughs> the, uh, the Finnish official said, well, about 50,000. And the congressman said, 50,000? Are you serious? He goes, yep. And they're all six feet under the ground. <laughs> Uh, the Finns have, you know, there's a history here, and they have the most incredible mobilization system I've ever seen. They can put 200,000 troops in the field, fully equipped, trained, ready to operate, and in just a very few days, which is what you have to do when you have a small population, but a huge border. You can't afford a stand, large standing army. The Finns have got this right. That's very reassuring to hear. Our last question in the media, you'll read that China sees that the United States and Europe thus far have been unwilling to use direct military force to defend Ukraine, noting that Ukraine is not an ally. But on the other hand, the international response to Russia's aggression has really been unprecedented in resourcing and the condemnation of what they've done. There are signs for optimism. But as you shift to the Indo-Pacific theater, what lessons do you think China may be learning from this war, and how do you see that impacting their calculations regarding a potential invasion of Taiwan, which, again, is not a U.S. ally, but there is a special security relationship with them? Thank you for that. That's a, a great question to, to kind of end on. First of all, you're right. The Chinese are watching closely what we're doing uh, in Ukraine, and they're probably taking away uh, quite a few lessons that if the United States, with all of our allies and all of our partners and all of our combined capabilities, can't deter 
or stop Putin from doing what he's doing, that's not a good outcome. They're going to sense that maybe what we say about Taiwan or South China Sea, not so impressive. And it will be much more difficult operating out in the Indo-Pacific region because of the distances involved here. We're talking about contiguous land masses. Plus, our Turkish ally controls the straits, entrance into the Black Sea. So we've got mostly most of the geographical advantages. It'll be a different story in the Pacific. So that's concerning. If I were out there, I would be paying much closer attention to Chinese uh, joint training. I would imagine that Indo-PACOM is doing exactly that, to, to be very uh, pay close attention to flight hours. How, how much are Chinese pilots actually flying, not just you know burning holes, but actually flying in combat-type training? I always hear about the Chinese Navy, how many ships they're building, but I don't think they have any any operational experience the way our Navy does. So uh, I would expect our great Navy out there is paying very close attention to the level of training and readiness of Chinese forces. Having a lot of ships does not equal a, a good Navy. Air and missile defense, clearly, um, if we don't have enough here, for sure we don't have enough in the Indo-Pacific region where the sky will be full of uh, all sorts of uh, anti-ship missiles as well as uh, other types. And then finally, the ammunition consumption, you know, the, the preferred munitions, those things are gone in no time. And, and I think the Congress uh, and the department have to buy more rounds, even if that means they're going to sit in bunkers and hope that we ever have to use them because it's, it's too late when you need them and, and you can't immediately increase production of uh, the preferred munitions. And I know the Secretary Austin is already having those conversations with industry. I think this is going to be an important part of our deterrence. General Hodges, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights into the current conflict in Ukraine. I know I learned a heck of a lot from you, and I am certain that our listeners did as well. Thank you. Dan, thanks for the the privilege of of doing this. Uh, Thanks for the the questions you gave me a chance to talk about and remember some things that I wanted to, to share, but also great to see that you are still continuing to serve. So thanks for that. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army Day. Hooah.